Welcome to the Godzilla Pod War Hour, Episode 2. Uh, my name is Michael Kelly, and with us, as always, Nathan Bear. Nathan, uh, thanks for joining us today. Thank you. Thank you for uh, coming over to my own house to do this. this well, is, uh, I mean, I tried to make you feel at home. <laughs> so uh, how, how much more at home can you be than in your own bedroom? Yeah, if only you'd loosen the noose. Anyways. What? Uh... <laughs> um, okay, so, anyways. Talking... About 1955's Godzilla Raids Again for an hour is not is not an endeavor that I would consider to, that in and of itself has merit. It's not the correct choice. However, talking about every Godzilla movie is, I, is an endeavor that I, I believe has merit. And technically, this is included amongst the Godzilla movies. <laughs> Ergo, we must talk about Godzilla Raids again. Yes, 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 we must. Uh, as painful and as it will be. Uh, let, let me first go for the, uh, the fact that in 1955, one of the greatest movies in Japanese history came out, uh, and it was made at Toho. It was not Godzilla Raids again. It was a movie by Mikio Naruse known as Floating Clouds, a very tragic look at post-war Japan. And then you have uh, Kurosawa's own analysis of nuclear paranoia. I Live in Fear, a.k.a. Record of a Living Being. Ishiro Honda, the director of the first Godzilla, made a movie called Half Human, which is about a yeti. That movie is currently banned in Japan because of the uh, grotesque depiction of the Ainu people. Uh, and as much as we'd love to talk about those three movies... Those are good movies. Yes. We, we, we will not be talking about that. Instead, we are going to be talking about Godzilla Raids again. <sighs> <sighs> well, I guess... God. Well, well... All right, all right. Well, oh, all right, all right, all right. Now, 1954, Godzilla comes out. It's a smash... We didn't really cover that in the last episode. It was very successful immediately upon release. It was released internationally the next year, 1955, as Godzilla, King of the Monsters, as we've already sort of covered. A sequel was commissioned, and it was a cheapo sequel. It was a quickie cash-in sequel. It took less than six months to complete and was rushed into theaters... April 25th, 1955, at the time known as Godzilla's Counter-Attack, which is a strangely human concept for a mutated dinosaur <laughs> to go into planning a counter-attack, let alone the fact it's not even the same monster. That, that, that's fine. No problem. All that still basically makes sense. And let, let, let's you know get this straight right off the bat. Godzilla, it's not like... There's a problem with a lot of Godzilla sequels. It's it's a it's a huge franchise. I think it's other than uh, well, I think it's got James Bond beat as far as entries. There's 28 yeah. Godzilla movies, so it's not like sequels are the problem. It's the fact that this sequel is the problem <laughs> yeah. because Godzilla Raids Again is the Grease Two of the Godzilla franchise. Yes, I mean just just to put it into perspective, like Grease Two, it has. None of the original cast members and barely any of the original crew members on board, excluding one or two. It really has no connection to the first one. There's a sort of labored attempt at a connection, and I, I think it's also important up front that we have never seen Godzilla's counterattack. We've never seen the 1955 Toho film. What 
we have seen and what people in America, basically the only thing that we have access to is 1959's Godzilla Raids Again, a.k.a. Gigantus the Fire Monster. So I have only ever seen the American version of this film. And it's not good. No, it, it just, it, it's bad. <laughs> it's just, it's, it it's terrible. It's garbage. The special effects, you can kind of give an okay. The fact yeah, you, that you've got you Godzilla can... fighting another monster in mutant-on-mutant combat, right. that's enticing. But everything else surrounding that is painful and disturbing and the... the it's just baffling, yeah. confusing. Like, it's just the, tonally, this movie is all over the place and from a, a basic storytelling standpoint... Okay, well... Um, well, maybe we should just start at the beginning. Let, let's start oh, at God. the beginning. So at right. the beginning of Gigantus the Fire Monster, we have a... Montage. Right. So, uh, I'm sorry. From here on forward, we're just going to be talking about the Americanized version. Who knows? Godzilla's Counterattack might be a great movie. I, I mean, it isn't. I have yeah. no way of knowing whether or not it is, but it's, it's slop. <laughs> but from here on in, we will just be talking about Godzilla Raids Again, a.k.a. Gigantus the Fire Monster. So, that's all that we can talk about, so that's what we will talk about. This film has the most bizarre story of its journey from Toho to America of any Godzilla movie, including the original. <laughs> yes, because yes. um, the original was at least, when it came to America and was chopped up, it was done with dignity intact. You have Raymond Burr added in in several scenes, so he at least adds some class right. to the He classes the up the proceedings. You know, and while they took out a lot of the anti-war atomic bomb sentiments, it's still lingering there. Whereas this movie does it the same way it does with Beast from 20,000 Fathoms, whereas the bomb isn't seen as a particular problem. It just, it's there. Right. It causes problems, but it's not like, oh, we should really consider uh, not using atomic bombs anymore. In fact, you know, I think the only way we can defeat this monster is by shooting it with radioactive isotope. Yeah, 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 that, that'll, that'll destroy it, okay? That would be the, uh, the Canadian general. So yeah, this movie, you, you get Godzilla's Counterattack, 1955. The, the brainstorms over in America at, and this isn't some punk distribution company, this isn't American Frontier Pictures or Bill's Movie Shack. This is Warner Brothers. They get this, what can only be described as a cockamamie scheme to take the footage from Godzilla's counterattack, edit out any reference to the fact that the monster is actually Godzilla. Yes. Including going so far as to take out any scene where it uses its fire breath. Mm -hmm. Anytime it roars, the roar has been hastily switched with Angurus, his monster call, and it's very jarring, all except for maybe two or three examples that clearly the audio editor just missed mm -hmm. because he was probably drunk or, <laughs> I don't know, someone was pointing a gun at him while he was doing it. Was it was probably or... Jack Warner. He was probably with his, you know, evil mustache going, yes, yes, He probably yes. did it all in one <laughs> in one night, and the only thing he'd had to eat that day was three-fifths of Old Dominion rubbing alcohol. I don't know. <laughs> the initial plan 
was to take the footage of Godzilla and Anguirus fighting in this movie, edit out the entire plot, all the scenes with all of the human characters, gone, and film new scenes with new American characters, and transpose the footage of Godzilla and Anguirus fighting into a separate plot and have them just be two of, of many other monsters that were showing up and fighting one another or something. And they were all under the blanket term, the fire monsters. Yes. And that was what the name of the movie was going to be called, the fire monsters. This plan was in, in motion to the extent that Toho, which, by the way, Toho signed off on this, was like, oh yeah, they packaged up the Godzilla and Anguirus costumes and shipped them to America, but the shipment got lost at some point, so the original Anguirus costume is just, is gone. It was like lost at sea, or maybe some pirates got to it, maybe the ship crashed, we don't know. There's, there might be someone out there who just has the original Anguirus costume, like in California, who keeps it in his garage and puts it on every Halloween. This is possible in the yeah. world we're living in right now. Like, this Pro is a possible scenario. Probably the same two guys uh, yeah. in Pulp Fiction. <laughs> uh, <laughs> with the, along with the gimp, they had the Anguirus costume. Bring, bring out Anguirus. Um, <laughs> basically, that, that's how far they got into this plan, that they actually shipped the costumes. And eventually, Toho or someone at Warner Brothers pulled the plug, and they just decided, okay, you know what? We'll rename it because we, for whatever reason, we don't want audiences identifying it as Godzilla because that makes sense. So we're just going to call it Gigantus the Fire Monster, which is infuriating, by the way, because why call it the Fire Monster if you're going to edit out all of the footage of Godzilla breathing fire? They retitle it Gigantus the Fire Monster, and... They add in this, this terrible narration. Just, it's just so bad. Yes, and, and one of the narrators is George Takai of Star Trek fame and LGBT fame. Uh, just you know, a wonderful all-around person. Who Worlds is, colliding, by yes. the way. George Takai, <laughs> Star Trek and Godzilla, they, they did overlap yes. at one point. <laughs> Pretty amazing. And George Takai, while we're on the subject, is people might not know this. But he's actually a pretty good actor. Certainly his role as Sulu in Star Trek is world famous and renowned. But he has been in a couple other things. He was in an episode of The Twilight Zone mm -hmm. called The Encounter. Yes. In which he was a gardener in the suburbs. And he was helping the father of the household clean out the attic. And they get trapped mm -hmm. in the attic. And they find a katana. Uh, amongst the house owner's accoutrement that he had brought back from Iwo Jima. And basically, they, the door gets locked, and they're locked in the attic. I'll go more into detail about this, because this is better than anything in Godzilla Raids yeah, again. Yeah. <laughs> they, they, uh, they get locked in the attic, and slowly but surely, things go from bad to worse, and they sort of get in a fight over this sword, because George Takei's father, was he reveals, was at Pearl Harbor, and... Or I, I can't remember. Maybe he fought in Iwo Jima, or like the, the thing is that only the majors or the generals had swords, so 
he says something like an honorable man had to, you know, you had to kill an honorable man in order to do this or mm-hmm. whatever. It's it's basically there's almost no science fiction in the episode at yeah. all. But Takei is amazing in it. He gives this bravada performance, and at the end they end up fighting to the death, and then he commits Harry Carey. Uh, and, and jumps yeah, out a window. And jumps uh, out a window. Which, actually uh, says bonsai. Yeah. And and jumps out a window. And I, it's it's a <laughs> it's a disturbing episode. You've seen this. Oh yes, it's banned or it was banned, I believe. Yeah. For a while, just because it was too uh, taboo. It was banned after it was released and was not available again until the DVD release of the Twilight Zone in two thousand four or whatever. So, yeah, it was banned for like forty years. So. Again, that's George Takei, voiceover artist on Godzilla Raids again, in a much more worthwhile endeavor. Yes. The encounter, Twilight Zone, season three, I think it was, three or five. Now, we, we had discussed before amongst ourselves that many of the voiceover actors are Japanese, and yet they insist on adding this stereotypical accent. It's just so bad. It's just, you It's know, just embarrassing. It's just, uh... Ah, I see some fish over there. Ah, maybe I should radio in yeah, they, the information. Yeah, they roll the R's like that. And it's radio. just so bad. It's just so bad. Well, the narration in this movie, it's like death by narration. It's, yes. They describe absolutely every event and minutia of, of, of everything that's happening in every scene to the extent where it's they think... I mean, it's it, it almost. I work at a movie theater, and there's this option on the assisted listening devices where you can get narration on it. And you, what it is is a person. There's a computer synced up to the film, and it will describe absolutely everything that's going on in the scene, just in case you want to see the movie, and uh, you you know are vision impaired, and it will describe what's going on. That's what this movie sounds like. Except it was apparently artistic, or it was supposed to be... An example of it would be like, in a normal movie, like maybe in the Japanese version, the main character, a guy named Sukioka, like if he walked into a room and poured a glass of water and drank it, it was like, ah, and then left. That would be the Japanese version. The audience would watch this. They would know what's happening because they've seen a movie before. And they would understand that maybe the character was thirsty, maybe he just wanted some water, and then we'll go on with it. Now, in Godzilla Raids Again, a.k.a. Gigantus the Fire Monster, wants this (laughs) suicide-inducing narration has been added. The same scene would play out, I walked into the room. I looked over at the sink. It had always served me well for drinking purposes. Knowing this, I walked over to it and turned the handle clockwise, as was the custom at the time. I put my cup under it, expecting water, although one can never be sure. My allegiance was rewarded, as in fact water poured into the cup. I, seeing that the water was fully in the cup, turned the handle, and then brought it up to my lips and drank, for I was thirsty and wanted a glass of water. Ah, the water was good and clean. And I wiped my lips in satisfaction and looked at the water and wondered what an age we are in, where we can pour ourselves a cup of water and have it come to us. Ah, this is very delicious. It's just like, yeah, we get it. (laughs) We understand. (laughs) This is the entire movie. This is with the exception 
of any scene with Godzilla and Anguirus while they're in the city fighting, or some of the action scenes earlier on, or whatever. But when it's just the human characters, that is what you have to listen to. It is describing everything, and it's insane. Yes, <laughs> it's difficult to watch. It's I'm not... it's, it, watching is easy. It's hard to listen. <laughs> yeah, I mean the whole the the even it, it's it's like watching a movie from when they were just discovering sound and they're like, oh look, we're selling sound. You know, look, right. the characters are talking, and you can hear what they're saying. It's a talking picture. But this is 1955. We've already established the grammar of audiovisual effects. There's no need for this. We can, we this we can not see. Yeah, yeah, you know, we get it. Yeah, it's just like, oh, this is a farming community. Okay, we don't need a harangue about how happy they are to work, how honorable it is to work here in Osaka. Uh, just none of that. You didn't get any of that in night in the in the Raymond Burr version. No, nothing. You know, he narrated a few things. Yes, he narrated Godzilla, but his character was a news reporter. It's like <laughs> that that actually makes sense. You this know? has nothing to do with anything. Yeah, this is just like well, I, I don't think I don't I don't think our audience in 1959 is prepared for this. I, I think we actually need to narrate everything. This is but a taste of the problems with this film. <laughs> I wish I could tell you this was the main problem, but this is one of the strengths of the movie because at least <laughs> at least you understand what is happening when the person is telling you, which is maybe they needed the narration because the scenes and what the characters do, their decisions are so baffling. Yeah. Oh, God. All right, so let, let's back up a second and... Let's state what is what is happening in this movie from a filming standpoint, and that is it is the first time that you have two monsters fighting each other in a Godzilla movie. And fortunately, the two monsters fighting was put together by E.J. Superaya, who did the special effects work on the first one. So we have at least one sane member of the crew. Correct. Much as John Williams was the only carryover crew member from the original Star Wars films to keep up his end of the bargain on the yeah. prequels by not phoning it in. Superaya at least came to the set sober. Yes. The sets look great. The costumes, the monster suits look amazing. Angerus has never looked better oh, yeah. than, That's than he the does in this film. The evilest Angerus. This is the look. most evil Angerus ever, but the the way it was filmed they didn't know what they were doing yet. There was this experimentation going on with frame rates where I think they were cranking it slower because they thought maybe then the monsters would look quicker because they wanted them to look aggressive. The net result is there's an awkwardness to the motion of the monsters fighting in this. It looks like they're sped up and maybe they're just fighting. Maybe it was just filmed at regular speed. And maybe you're just seeing the monster fight just play out in, in real time as the actors were doing it on the set. And it's only after you've seen a ton of Godzilla movies, as we both have, that you, you realize how awkward and how wrong this looks. I mean, can you think of a different way to describe it? I read somewhere, in fact, I think it was off of IMDb, that they tried overcranking, which is to slow it down. 
because what when there's more frames, right. the image played back at 24 frames a second looks slower. So they thought it would add some weight to it, which makes sense. But apparently, they accidentally undercranked it, which makes everything look right. faster. If they actually were overcranking it, then the guys in the suits must have been on hardcore cocaine. Yeah, because that means. Yeah. They were actually going the speed of light when yes. they were fighting. Yeah, they, they, they screwed up the ratio. Yeah, I guess they decided to keep it because uh, it was a cheapy sequel. And it put yeah. Godzilla on ice for eight years. Literally. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, this practically killed the Godzilla franchise. It's basically a miracle mm. that we have other Godzilla movies after this because judging this film based on its standalone merit... I, I don't think this franchise should have continued after this. I think it should have just been like, oh, well, we had Godzilla. That was amazing. And then this comes out, and you're like, what? what? This is nonsense. Yeah. This, obviously, this can't continue like this. You're, you're negating everything that the first film stood for in terms of the message, the tone... So basically, it works like the episode one, the Phantom Menace of the Godzilla series. That, <laughs> yeah. that, that's how it, it works. It's really like... Wow, you did all this good work, and you just blew it all away. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You just... uh, Godzilla came out, and it was a phenomenon. People were freaking out. It's like, oh, have you seen this? And before they even knew what they had, they slapped together raids again and pushed it out there and like, and here's another one. <laughs> and it's just not the same. It looks like Godzilla. It sounds like Godzilla on occasion, but. You know, they did their damnedest to, to botch this thing up. <laughs> and uh, they succeeded admirably. Um, the the music is not done by Akira Ifukube this time around. No, this is by Masaru Saito, who uh, is a competent composer. He did do work for... Akira Kurosawa in his later black and white career. They had a falling out after uh, his 1965 film Redbeard. He had done other films, Throne of Blood, The Hidden Fortress, which uh, Star Wars is uh, mostly oh, yeah. speaking, based off of. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Speaking of yeah. Star Wars, so, Hidden uh, Fortress. Yeah, so uh, there's our six degrees of separation right there. But unfortunately, this is not one of those films. <laughs> the, yeah. the scene, this film is surrounded by so much greatness. Right. And yet, and it, it's it's lightly touched by such talented people. And, and, yet... and I will say, for as much hate as we have heaped on this movie, there are glimpses of what is to come in the series. There are, just if you turn your head and kind of squint and imagine that the roar that Godzilla is roaring is Godzilla's roar and not Anguirus's roar, and if you just sort of look at it and you're like, oh, I can sort of see where some of these people would come back and do amazing things in less than a decade's time. But there's some major restructuring that needs to happen. Yeah. Here's motion picture adventure and excitement to stagger the imagination. The fantastic fire monsters raging out of the flaming bowels of hell. Mighty Gigantus, crushing whole cities in its wrath. And deadly Angurus, screaming its challenge of mortal combat. 
the battle of the ages. Scenes and sights and sensations beyond anything the screen has ever shown. Real quick before we get into the the plot, George Takei, we did mention George Takei earlier, but George Takei was around for the some of the group scenes in this. He does the voiceover. He's not actually in the film. I wanted to be specific about that. He's not in the film. He does voiceovers, so he was in America at the time. I'm not sure what the extent of his services to the studio were, but you can hear him in this, so he was definitely doing voiceover work, and he is responsible, to my knowledge, for using the term banana oil. Yes, banana oil, because... Let's talk about banana oil for well, just a second. Well, well there's a, a scene where one of the characters who, in Japanese, refers to uh, his female companion as a fool or an idiot or like, oh, that's stupid, and the phrase is bakero. That's what the phrase means. It's like, right. oh, foolish, stupid, something like that, or don't be silly. It's not that there wasn't an English translation. It's that there was no English translation that you could fit over his mouth movement when he said bakero. Yes. So instead, they had to come up with the nonsensical term banana oil. Because that's what we all say, especially in 1955, you know, that's what all the thugs are saying. Ah, banana oil. So that's the sort of nonsense we're dealing with here. <laughs> people are just saying things like banana oil. So you're already in a fantasy world where people are talking gobbledygook gibberish. So now we're going to attempt to try and go through the plot of this film. But there could be a question mark after the word plot. Yes. Because it's... Let's start at the beginning. I think that's okay. probably the easiest thing. The stock footage. Yeah. The yes? stock footage, yes. A, uh, like most 50s horror movies from America, it starts off with a montage of you know Sputnik and rockets shooting off into space. Uh, basically, lots of Freudian ejaculation metaphors uh, with, a narr- with another, an American narrator you know, going, yo, oh, man has reached the stars. He off to Mars. But what the consequences, what, you know, this, this is the story of As consequences. As we take a step forward yes. who knows are we taking a step back yes the movie starts off sukiyaka sukiyaka yeah. sukiyaka played by godzilla series regular hiroshi kazumi who would go on to be in some of the best godzilla movies ever yes uh he he was the co-star in mothra versus godzilla arguably the greatest godzilla film ever made and so it's not his fault. Yeah. No, no. He he is he's acquitted of any wrongdoing in this movie. He is just a victim of circumstance. Yes. That's that's all you can say. Sukiyaka flies a biplane, I'm not sure what you would call it. It's a monoplane, but his job is to search for fish. Right. He searches for schools of fish back when water contained fish so that way fishing the the happy-go-lucky fishing company he works for can uh, send their boats out and deliver right a big catch he flies up high in the sky and spots schools of tuna yes so the tuna company he works for can catch them which uh, is kind of a cool job i didn't know that was a yeah. job that existed makes sense yeah uh unfortunately uh narrating is also another job he has because he narrates everything he's doing and i think he's voiced by several actors because at one point he is clearly 
George Takei. And this happens, <laughs> if you watch the Sonny Chiba, the dub version of Sonny Chiba's The Street Fighter. Which uh, you should, immediately. Yes, it's an amazing film. Much better than this, even dubbed. It is clear that several of the characters, the, the people dubbing them, rotate. Yeah, I think what happened was they started recording the voiceover and they couldn't stop. And maybe the guy was in the can, and the part came up on the screen again. It's like, oh, Bill's indisposed. All right, Larry, you just record for this character now. And that's all the thought that went into it. So, Sukiyaka up in the sky, and his buddy, Kubayashi. The guy doing the voiceover for Kubayashi sounds like Yogi Bear. He sounds like he's doing a cartoon bear or moose or some kind of slow dog of some kind. He literally sounds like, Oh, Sukiyaki, I brought some pies, but I tripped on a root and splashed them all over my shirt. Like, that's what he sounds like. It's like, how how can you possibly... What? That, that's not how real humans sound? Anyway, so, Sukiyaka overhears Kubayashi on the radio. Kubayashi's had to make an emergency landing onto a strange island that yes. he has never seen before in this patch of of sea that they fly over every day and they know like the back of their hand. <laughs> Sukiyaka flies in to save Kubayashi, who is stranded on this island, and hey, what do you know? There happens to be Godzilla and Anguirus are on this island and they're they're engaged in fisticuffs. Um, now I wanted to say real quick, this is not Godzilla from Godzilla King of the Monsters. This is a second animal that just happens to be on this island that's like a hundred miles away from Japan. And who knows how long he's been there. I saw this movie for the first time probably when I was about 20, maybe 21, 22. There had always been this puzzle in my brain. Okay, at the end of Godzilla, he gets vaporized by the oxygen destroyer. Godzilla versus King Kong, he's frozen in an iceberg. What happens in this intermediary movie? Maybe his cells in the bottom of Tokyo Bay start to cluster together. Maybe they weren't all destroyed. Maybe they regenerated because Godzilla seems pretty hard to kill in the later films. And maybe he kind of built himself back together like the T-1000. <laughs> or maybe there was another atomic bomb. Maybe when this other atomic bomb was set off, it set up a schism in time or some sort of dimensional rip. And... It made it so the original Godzilla went through the hole just before the oxygen destroyer was set off or something. Maybe there's some crazy science fiction explanation. HP Lovecraft. HP Lovecraft, Twilight Zone, Star Trek, The Next Generation excuse for how you could get Godzilla back. No, it's just another Godzilla on an island, you know? People think that uh, the cheesiness slowly crept into the series, like something like Monster Island or Monsterland, as it is alternately referred to. No. Right here in the, the first sequel, you've got basically Monster Island, present and accounted for, a hundred miles off the coast of Japan, and it's just so lazy. The first time I saw this, my jaw dropped at how I was just like, that's it? There's just another island? Not too far away, where the monsters have been forever, maybe? We don't know. And they're just fighting, like, at all times. It's not that big of an island. The first one starts with Hitchcockian suspense, right. where, where boats are blowing up 
randomly and nobody knows what's causing it. <laughs> right. We have to investigate. There's a fear and danger. It's just like, oh, hey, it's midnight wrestling. <laughs> right. It's like, oh, there's some more monsters. Yeah. It's like, what? It... Ah, it's so, it's just so lazy. It's so lame. Anyway, so uh, we got to power through this. They go back to Osaka because at least they don't go to Tokyo because Tokyo is still being rebuilt. They meet with the leading scientists, including Takashi Shimura's character, Dr. Yamane, who makes a the, brief cameo. Yeah, the one, the one holdover character from the original Godzilla. So they, they meet with these leading minds who, like all leading minds, have children's dinosaur books and, and drawings to look over of different dinosaurs and eventually they find <laughs> the right two dinosaurs and then it just gets ridiculous well, well they okay <laughs> dr yumani for some reason these scientists they need to be shown stock footage yes of godzilla's assault on tokyo this to me immediately stuck up in a sea of red flags this was like a giant red flag that just came up it's like these are the top paleontologist scientist dudes. Wouldn't they know about Godzilla yeah. by now? This is less than a year since Godzilla destroyed Tokyo. And Yamani shows him this film strip, which, by the way, is just a sizzle reel from the first Godzilla. I don't know, maybe Yamani was, like, taking home videos and we just didn't see that scene. He was like, oh, yeah, this is great for posterity or whatever. It would make sense for the character because he wanted to study it before he got killed. But there was yeah. certainly nothing in the original film where, where there was scenes with Yamani with his little Super 8 camera yeah. between, you know, Just the, like, uh, oh, yeah. the front lines. Yeah, yeah, you breathe that radioactive breath guts on. Um, I'm going to record this. So, right, Yamani shows him this sizzle reel of stuff from Godzilla before it actually gets to the footage of Godzilla. This is one of the Warner Brothers additions to the yes, film. They yes. show this... Terrible, embarrassing, awful, uh, clearly clips from some other movie with guys in dinosaur suits that, I shit you not, they, they look like paper mache costumes made for some children's high school play that takes place in, in like, if there was some high school production of One Million Years B.C. <laughs> and they needed, like, Tyrannosauruses or whatever, that's what these guys... It's such an insult to the quality of the actual monster suits from the Godzilla films. It, it looks like sub-Gamera, sub-Power Rangers. It, it, Sub-Ultraman. Sub, Sub-Ultraman. It's just... It's so bad. Um... He shows him footage of this. He's like, these are the fire monsters. They ruled the earth at one time. Don't ask how I got this footage. Oh, they, yes. And it, then, like, they've, just, yeah. they've been showing up in the last yeah. few years. He just says this yeah. offhand. It's like, and lately, who knows, because of atomic tests, they've just been showing up. And, what are you talking about? And then he reads from the kid's book. And the kid's book, at least according to the English narration, he's like reading, if one of these monsters was ever to wake up, it would surely destroy the human race. It's, it's like... like Oh, oh, you mean one of another one of these monsters other than Godzilla from yeah. the footage you just showed yeah. us? Did you just forget that? And so yeah, he shows him footage of Godzilla, and uh, you know which they never refer to as Godzilla. He's never the the word Godzilla is never used in this yeah, movie it's or a, Gorgira. It's always Gigantus. Yeah, or another Angerus. Yeah, because they, uh, they, yeah. they can't they seem can't, to get which one well, yeah. is which. They they. Uh, <sighs> 
God. And uh, anyways, Anguirus, according to this children's sticker book that they find, <laughs> Anguirus has brains, has, has a separate brain in each one of his appendages, which is why he moves so quickly. Uh, yeah. Which is sort of interesting. Certainly never mentioned again in, in the rest of the Godzilla series and uh, his appearances. Nor does it play any significant no. role in the plot. No. It's just you confusing know. babble just thrown in. You know, Chekhov says if there is a gun in the first act, it goes off by the third act. But by this rule, if there's a gun in the first act, monkey. That, that's yeah, it. That, yeah, that's yeah. the logic this, this. is the level of logic we're dealing with here. Okay. So he shows these top scientists in Japan this footage of Godzilla that they've apparently never seen before and are unfamiliar with. And apparently they're like, one thing I can tell you is that bright lights attracted the monster or whatever. <laughs> and then Dr. Yamane is like, I have to leave now because I was only contractually obligated to appear in this film for one scene. Yeah. So he goes back to doing whatever. like Starring in Kurosawa's own nuclear film, I Live in Fear, right. where he plays a lawyer. Right. Overseeing Emiko's wedding. Perhaps. Yeah. I don't know. <laughs> and so the characters are like, okay, well, we'll take bright lights and we'll, we'll bring Godzilla in case him and Anguirus try to come to Japan or Osaka. We'll use the bright lights to um, <laughs> distract him and, and get, him to not, get him to not go in and destroy Osaka, which I guess is a pretty good plan. Uh, who knows? Ugh. I'm losing track. The point is, they... <sighs> well, it, it, here's the thing. Like, like in the previous one, where they dropped a shitload of depth charges on uh, what they thought, what they assumed was Right, Godzilla. they do the depth charge thing they, again. Yeah, so they do that, and, and then... And of pretty, course it doesn't work. Yeah. Who knows if it's even in the same ocean yeah. <laughs> and, that, that they're in. <laughs> you know, we don't know. They're just throwing stuff at walls, yeah. seeing if, if it sticks. And, of course, the newspaper pops up that Gigantus is not going to attack Osaka, so... Yeah, based on no information yeah. of any kind, and the narrator yeah. is very thorough about this. And this is an interesting thing. In the montage of people happily pre and oh, prematurely yeah. enjoying their celebrations, there's a clip of some pre-war stock footage where, if you look carefully, you can see where they tried to blur out a swastika, which, when the film bumps... You can see the swastika under the Disney-like bubble they put over it. So yeah, I, I don't know what was going on with that. That was I don't even know if that was Toho or Warner Brothers uh, at, at this point. It's just both, footage from yeah. 1945. Yeah. Like the, this cut-rate shoestring operation desperately needed, yeah. even though it had Nazi insignia yeah. strewn about. The cutting corners doesn't quite cover it. Yeah. So anyways... There's a dance scene, which is actually probably one of the few other highlights of this. Yeah. <laughs> Where it's a very nice musical number and everyone's dancing. Yeah, Tsukiyaka and uh, his girlfriend Hademi are there. And the yes. dance is very nice. And wouldn't you know it, the death charges don't work. <laughs> Godzilla comes ashore. He starts messing with the works, as it were. But... Oh, no, the lights work. They have the flares in the sky. They have these planes rigged up to go by and drop flares, and it distracts Godzilla. And he's like, you know what? I'm not going to obliterate Osaka. I'm going to go away. And you're like, okay, at this point, everything's working pretty good. Anguirus hasn't even showed up. Godzilla's leaving. Uh, I think they've averted a crisis here. 
And then, as is normally the case in these movies, you switch into an insane prison break episode <laughs> where these criminals are being escorted in this bus and they take over the bus, they kill the prison guards. This is all, the narration is extremely thorough about their plan. It's really just a scene of these criminals in the back of this paddy wagon exchanging looks. And the narration is like, they're devious schemes. Went into extreme. They knew the timing was right. Blah, blah, blah. It's just like, you know, okay, we've covered the narration, but it's in full force here. They take over the paddy wagon. They kill the guards. They get into a a police chase, and they drive into an oil refinery, (laughs) and they bullseye a giant oil tank, and the whole, like, half of Osaka explodes, uh, bafflingly. And Godzilla turns around and is like, oh, this giant fire. I'm, you know what? Second thought, I am going to go destroy Osaka. He does. Angerus shows up. And is, of course, uh, introduced by, oh, look, Angerus has showed up. Yeah, yeah. And a word about Angerus and his place in the series. Angerus is a fan favorite. He's a very loyal monster. He's also sort of the punching bag of the Godzilla universe. He's like the, the Robin, or more appropriately, he's like the hostage or sort of the kind of the loyal dog to Godzilla, you know? He's not really an equal to Godzilla in terms of of fighting. He can't really end a conflict by himself. But he's really... He's cool. He's he's cool, but he's... In the latter Godzilla films, you're like, you're looking at Angerus, Mechagodzilla will, you know, break his jaw. Yeah, rips his jaw. Ghidorah will, like, you know, kick him, punt him, just, like, get out of here or whatever. Uh, Gigan cuts off his nose. Gigan cuts off his nose with his buzzsaw chest, and you're like, man, Angerus, what happened? Like, what what brought you to this state? And then you watch Godzilla Raids again, and you understand uh, emphatically what happened to Angerus, and that is... The first half of this movie, Anguirus is a different monster. He is a younger monster. He is driven. He is focused. He is vicious. He is mean. He is incredibly pissed off at Godzilla for reasons that are never addressed. And he is viciously trying to kill Godzilla in every scene. And in Osaka, Godzilla initiates the critical beatdown Mm -hmm. on Anguirus. It's one of the worst beatings that any monster takes in any of these movies. Godzilla, like, completely destroys Angerus and, like, tears out his throat and just kicks him in a ditch at the end of it. And you're like, oh, I get it now. I finally understand. (laughs) Angerus was trying to be, you know, the king. And he just gets, in this movie, he just gets his ass kicked so much that not only is he physically defeated... But it psychologically defeats him for the rest of the series. Yeah. The thing I equate it to is like Biff Tannen in Back to the Future. <laughs> you know, Biff is like this this badass in 1955 or whatever, or even the original 1985. He's like, eh, don't spill your father spilled beer all over my shirt, you know, butthead or whatever. And then you switch to the end of the movie. Well, I was just putting the second coat of wax on now, Mister McFly. <laughs> you know. That's what happens to Angerus. He is as one defeated. <laughs> and he's just yeah. sort of moping around for the rest of the series. He's incredibly loyal to Godzilla mm-hmm. because he knows he can't return at Godzilla because Godzilla will just smite him again. He's yeah. much like Starscream, is very loyal to Megatron, but you always kind of suspect that, you know, he really would stab him in the back at any time if he had the chance. 
as goes Anguirus and Godzilla. <laughs> so uh, Anguirus gets a beating and then blown up. Because <laughs> up until this point, the radiation breath doesn't work. But after having your neck slashed <laughs> and thrown through Osaka Castle. Which I've been to. Very nice, by the yeah. way. <laughs> and, uh, so, and then set ablaze, Godzilla turns around and says, I'm done. You, you guys can clean up now. So he leaves, and then our characters, after crying and uh, looking over the wreckage and giving the usual, oh, how horrible this, this, this thing is. Let's go to Hokkaido in the north, the big, the snow country of Japan. This is where the film, if it hadn't already, goes officially off the rails. This was the first time they had made a Godzilla movie where he fights another monster, and I understand. I get it. First times are... Awful and awkward. You don't and... have your timing right. Yeah. You're you're rushing everything, and you're not thinking of the long-term thing. You're not thinking about the end game. You're just, you know... They, Anguirus gets defeated in this, and Godzilla is in the middle of the city. Um, and they just they cut away to Hidemi, and she's saying a prayer for the city. And that's it. You don't get any scene of Godzilla going back into the ocean or... He just disappears. It's like, okay, I assume he goes back into the ocean and they think he's dead now or whatever. It's just slop filmmaking. Um, and then as you said, yeah, it's it's the next day. Oh, this is so terrible. Hey, let's go to Hokkaido. <laughs> so as in the beginning, our main character, Sukiyaka, where he was talking about Osaka in the beginning and giving us a glimpse into the honorable lives of the populace there, he does the same thing with Hokkaido. He says... And then we move to Hokkaido and we, we learn about the honorable people of the snow country and how hard it is to work. This, this is one of the more baffling aspects of the film. Okay, Anguirus is defeated. Godzilla, I guess, we're left to surmise, turned around and went back to the sea. We now spend minimum 10 minutes with these people putting their lives back together. Moving to Hokkaido, putting the whole thing behind them, going through a day or two on the job, getting back into their personal romantic lives, a little love triangle possibly with Kubayashi thrown in there, even and though a, he sounds like a stupid cartoon bear. And, and a few jokes, and about, a few jokes. Uh, about domestic house life. A few jokes about domestic house life and, and fishing net. There was a joke about a fishing net. It's just, I've already got you in my net, Sukaraki. <laughs> And they go to a, they go to a restaurant, and they're just like it. It turns into like Saint Elmo's fire for some reason. It's just like, where, where the fuck is Godzilla? What what is what am I watching here? It just it just it turns into a, a different movie, and it's like, where, this is halfway through the movie. This isn't like a denouement. The narrative just careens off of this pointless exploration of these boring, stupid, bland characters. A, a random dance number would have made more sense at right. this point. <laughs> and it just has, you know, I, so, okay, 12 minutes into this excursion into just a character study of these cardboard two-dimensional characters, someone, I don't even remember who, comes into a room and he's like, oh, Gigantus is alive, I guess. So they're like, "Oh yeah, I forgot. We're in the movie Godzilla raids again. We're in a we're inside of a Godzilla movie right now. So maybe that should be the focus." 
and not dinner parties <laughs> that go nowhere and last for 40 minutes. So they spot Godzilla. He's on an iceberg, I guess, or something. Yes, which we see from a bird's eye view uh, where there is a toy Godzilla yeah. in the middle of... I think it was James Rolfe who said this is the fakest looking shot of Godzilla in any of the Godzilla movies. And I would agree with that. Yes. I think he is... And it's clearly just a mannequin that they set up and they threw the Godzilla suit on because he is completely static. His movement is just... He's just frozen. Uh, not, and not because of the ice. He's just, he's just like... It's a still shot and the camera is moving. So you can tell it flies around him and you get a real good look at him. The suit has been put on a mannequin. That's the only way I can think of because it's so unnatural, even for a slow moving creature like Godzilla. Anguirus, by the way, is not in the rest of the movie. I guess he truly was killed, although yeah. we get no confirmation of that. He's just gone. Yeah. <laughs> they see him on this island. I don't know why he's there. And they commence attacking him. Yes, with the Japanese Air Self-Defense Force commences firing on it, and Kobayashi decides to attack Yeah, Gigantus. He's flying a ship that has almost no weaponry. It's It's been modified to spot tuna fish. Yes. He thinks that he can take down Godzilla. That couldn't be taken down by tanks, right. rockets, planes. Oh, no. I want to be very specific about how this scene is set up. Kobayashi... And Sukioka start fighting Godzilla and their planes. It's like the trench battle from Star Wars. They kind yeah. of swoop in and they take a couple of shots here and there. I don't even know why they have weapons on their ships because they're meant to be like spotting schools of fish. But I guess they have a couple of rockets on there for whatever reason. And anyways, a couple of the people from the military, some other military vessels come in well, and they, assist they, them, or well, it's part well, of the mission. Well, what happens is uh, Kobayashi, in his unarmed plane, decides to fly past Godzilla. He is killed because he, he, he you know, the, this, he can't do anything. I guess, <clears throat> I, I think in his knowledge, he's trying to distract Godzilla, but... This is not, this is not yeah. what I get from this scene at all. I think we're in disagreement here. I believe Kobayashi deliberately kills himself by flying into the mountain... Because they've exhausted their supply of uh, school of tuna fish spotting missiles that they have on board their ships for some reason. And Kubayashi decides, much like Randy Quaid in Independence Day, he must sacrifice himself by flying into the top of this peak of this mountain iceberg yeah. thing. And after he blows up, they realize they can cover Godzilla with ice cubes. Right. And, and the uh -huh. way Kubayashi says it, he's like, Oh, wait a minute, I have an idea. And again, this is how his voice sounds. Oh, tell, tell my fiancé that he proposes to in the scene before this. Uh, tell my fiancé that I love her. And, and then he, 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 he commits Harry Carey into, this, into the side of this mountain. You have to remember, this is post-war Japan where ideas like that were not considered cool. Well, it's, it, 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 it's, strategically, it makes no sense at all. Yeah. Because this is two minutes into like a nine-minute scene of them bombarding this, this mountain. This is very early on in this sort of action climax part of this movie. And by the way, Kubayashi's radio works just fine. So he can he can communicate this idea to the other pilots flying around. He's like, "Oh, guys, I got it. 
let's just shoot the peaks and they'll come down and the chunks will bury Godzilla and he'll be he'll be frozen or whatever. He could have said that. There's no reason why he couldn't have radioed over what he was thinking. Instead, he was like, no, the only way to communicate this is to kill myself by flying into this hill. It makes no sense. Yeah, the character commits suicide for no reason at all. <laughs> to look upon the scene is to go mad. <laughs> the, 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 anyways, uh, so, all right. But that would make sense if they were out of missiles. Yeah. Or if the attack was over with and they still, if Godzilla was sort of, you know, he wasn't quite subdued and it'd just take one last hit, but they were out of missiles and so he has to kill himself, it'd be heroic. No, this is like, he kills himself and they're like, oh yeah, great idea, Kubiashi, by killing yourself and flying the plane into the peak and causing an avalanche. That's a great idea. Let's start shooting, you know? And so they start shooting their missiles and... Five minutes later, they're like, let's go back to the base and refuel. They yeah. go back to the base. They, they and draw... Soroki yeah, talks to the, the head commander, who I believe is the same actor from Seven Samurai. His name escapes me, but he's one of the villagers. And, and, and he insists, you know, that he come with him, despite having no military experience right. with jets. You know, and no, no experience other than he can fly a monoplane. Uh, he decides, he says, I have a score to settle. Right. So. Because to avenge Kubiashi, and so they refuel, they get into better planes, and they go back and continue this scene. It's so. It just does. It. It just seems like. Why wouldn't they have that planning scene first, and then just have one full uncut attack on Godzilla? You know what yeah. I mean? Like why? Why wouldn't it just be the the scene where they're planning on how to attack him, and then the attack? Yeah. Why have the attack start? Kubiashi kills himself like two minutes okay. into it. They attack for like three more minutes, go back to the base, draw up a second more elaborate plan, switch planes, go back out, finish the job. It's 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 like this the breakdown of fundamental, you know, story cognitive reasoning. <laughs> well, it, what, what, it, it, here's the thing. Ishiro Honda, who directed the first one, like Kurosawa, was really good at story structure. Here's some examples. In Seven Samurai, before the village is under attack, the samurai plan out the defense. There's lots of maps, there's lots of we're going to do this and that. And the rest of the story is them acting out the map, basically. Now, it doesn't all go the way they plan. But, but at least there was a plan. Yeah, there was a plan, and the story follows that plan, both its pros and cons. Godzilla's the same way. When there's a problem, the military comes up with a few ideas. We see a map, we see a, and then we're going to do this, and then we're going to do that. Godzilla destroys all those plans, except for the final plan, the oxygen destroyer. That's their, you know, ace in the hole. But it's all planned out. It's all there. It's all in the story structure. This doesn't have that. This is like, okay, let's take a break in the middle of the attack. Again, that's what I want to hit on here. It's in the middle of the attack, which, okay, baffling from, from a st structure standpoint, but from a f like watching the film for the sake of pleasure, which I don't know why you would do that. But yeah. if you were watching this movie, I mean, how many times did it take you to watch this movie this time? Yeah, this time, it, it took me like... Three tries. Yeah. I mean, it, it was easier when I first saw it. I could just watch it, right. you know, when I was younger and didn't care about these things. But now I do. And Again, just... this is someone who knew the podcast was coming up, knew he had to watch this movie, but even then still stopped watching it 
two times. To watch Gamera versus the Sharp Monster. Right. Uh, <laughs> we will not be discussing Gamera on this program. Yeah. But the, the point is, it's very hard to watch. It's and, and okay, and yes, okay. So the structure, that's one thing. But from a movie-going standpoint, what this does is completely severs any tension, any momentum that the scene is building up. It's like, let's go for a coffee break in the middle. It's like at the end of Return of the Jedi, if Wedge and Lando Calrissian would have gone back to Endor for like tea and crumpets in the middle of it and just be like, let's rethink this thing. Well, I guess we'll pretty much do the same exact plan, but let's take a breather, maybe take a nap for a while, you know. And then they go back, and then they blow up the Death Star. It's just like, what? What is happening? Um, oh God. So, yeah. And then they 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 cover them up in ice. And ice. And they do finish it, and uh, they they blow up everything, and um, and they blow up the ice, and it covers Godzilla, and he's he's trapped until King Kong versus Godzilla in 1962. Which is a real breath. A fresh air, which I'm sure is what Godzilla felt as soon as the ice broke yeah. in that film. Certainly one of my favorite Godzilla movies ever. Um, it's definitely it, a or, good one. I mean, this, is, this isn't this is a Godzilla movie. This is barely a movie. All the elements that go into making a movie are just thrown out with this. It's, like, a, it's a challenge to yeah. the viewer. It's like a, hey, watch this. You this know, see like... if you could watch this. You got the narration. You got... 20 minutes just visiting with the characters it which makes... amounts to like a dvd extra yeah. in the middle of the movie like spend five days with these characters even though nothing of the plot is happening then you have the secondary main character who's a oafish cartoon character sacrifice himself for no reason at all only for them to go back to the base and you know take a nap and then come back to it it's just maybe this movie's brilliant Maybe, Maybe we're just looking at it in the wrong way. Maybe, Maybe this is a work of genius. Maybe. They're great B-movies. Like, lovely, great B-movies. But this, this is just hard to watch. I had high hopes for this movie. Yeah. You know, I saw, the first time I found out about it was in the Crestwood House Books Monster Series mm-hmm. when I was a kid. And they showed stills, which were clearly production stills or, or advertising for the advertising campaign. And they looked incredible. I always imagined this movie as a kid being... Oh, this like this looks great because it's the only Godzilla movie in black and white where he's fighting another monster, so it's gonna be weird and dark yeah. and sort of mysterious. And I'm finally gonna find out how Godzilla got trapped in the ice and how he came back from the grave. And there's gonna be all this amazing monster destruction footage, and they blow up Osaka. It's gonna be amazing. And then I watched it, and I was just like, "Yeah, what a waste of time." <laughs> I bought it on VHS. I liked it. But then the first time I saw it, just because I had waited so long to see it, but just as years go by, it's just it just stays stashed in the, my the, other collection of VHSs. Right. There's, you know, I watched it and it's just like there's a reason why this movie has remained hidden. Yeah. There's a reason why no one talks about this movie, and they they or they quickly change the topic of the conversation. This is the Beyond the Bastard Child, of the Godzilla <laughs> series. This is yeah. like the mutated. Thing that they keep in the basement and they feed a bucket of fish heads to every two weeks to make sure, you know, it's like, oh yeah, because you need this movie, you need it to connect Godzilla and King Kong versus Godzilla, and you need the introduction of Anguirus. But it's. Anyways, 
that's uh i think that's it for this week yep so uh next week we will be talking about uh king kong versus godzilla or godzilla versus king kong we'll consider this the hump episode this is the one we had we just had to do or else it just wouldn't be the it's godzilla a, pod yeah. war hour we're completists <laughs> uh, or maybe we're masochists mm-hmm.